Well, good morning. I'm Julie Coleman. I'm one of the members of the teaching team here at New Hope Chapel. Um, you normally follow a series when we're doing teaching up here. Uh, all the teaching team members participate in continuing series, usually over a book in the Bible. But we are in between books for the next two weeks, and so it was kind of an a la carte message that was needed. And I told Steve, I have one. Can I teach? <laughs> so I'm it for this week. But we're going to be looking at the uh, book of James uh, in, in chapter 3. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to it. There will be some up on the screen as well. And it's a passage about, da-da, controlling the tongue. I know none of you need to hear this message. This is for me. <laughs> now, you'll probably remember that old saying from childhood, sticks and stones will break my bones, but... Names will never hurt me, right? Well, one time I was doing, I was a teacher at um, Annapolis Area Christian School for a long time, and I was doing a chapel for the third to fifth graders, and I asked them this question. Was it better to hurt someone with words, or was it better to hit them or punch them? What were, of, the, of the two things, which would be the lesser evil? So, as you can imagine, we took a vote, and... The punches and uh, slaps had, them, had it by long shot. Well, then I asked all the adults in the room, teachers, parents that happened to be there at chapel, to please stand. And they did. And I said, now, I would like to ask all of you grown-ups, if you can remember a time when you were either in third or fourth or fifth grade where someone either called you a terrible name or someone did something very hurtful to you with their words. Every single grown-up raised their hand. I said to the kids, look around you. Those people are old, and they still remember. Words can have a very lasting damage on people. And I think most of us, hopefully, has now as adults, have learned the damage our words create. And I'm sure all of you have been reckon, uh, cognizant at one time or another of a time when your words hurt someone, especially the people that you love the most. Um, but too often, in the heat of the moment, we lose self-control and we do say things that we shouldn't. And we're not alone. James says, uh, if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man. So in other words, if that's the thing. If you don't stumble in anything you say, if you don't say anything bad ever, you're perfect. All the rest of the stuff just falls into place. Well, Obviously, none of us are perfect, and so it's obviously a part of our human condition. So common that James decided, dedicated a big part of his letter on writing the, about the problem of the tongue. So in studying this section of James this morning, we're going to see the problem for what it is, and we're going to find that the remedy uh, to get us out, to get us further down the road to using our tongues for good. So let's take a look at James, and we're looking at chapter 3, verse 1 to 12. <clears throat> Let not many of you become teachers, my brethren, knowing... That is such, we will incur a stricter judgment. For we all stumble in many ways. If anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able to bridle the whole body as well. Now, if we put the bits into horses' mouths so that they will obey us, we direct their entire body as well. Look at the ships also. Though they are so great and are driven by strong winds, they're still directed by a very small rudder wherever the inclination of the pilot desires. So also the tongue is a small part of the body, and yet it boasts of great things. See how great a forest is set aflame by such a small fire. 
and the tongue is a fire, the very world of iniquity. The tongue is set among our members as that which defiles the entire body and sets on fire the course of our life and is set on fire by hell. For every species of beasts and birds, of reptiles and creatures of the sea is tamed and has been tamed by the human race. But no one can tame the tongue. It's a restless evil and full of deadly poison. With it, we bless our Lord and Father, and with it, we curse men who have been made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come both blessing and cursing. My brethren, these things ought not to be this way. Does a fountain send out from the same opening both fresh and bitter water? Can a fig tree, my brethren, produce olives or a vine produce figs? Nor can salt water produce fresh. Let's pray. Ask God to help us in this passage. Lord, every one of us has trouble with our tongue. It's one of those things that will probably be with us Um, until you come again. But we do know, God, that it is not your desire for our tongue to be um, used in a bad way. And so I ask, Lord, today that you would help us to look at this passage, to really get the meaning from it that you intended. Get me out of the way, God. Let your powerful word speak to each of our hearts and as you are faithful to use it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, that first verse is a little intimidating especially for uh, this woman up here endeavoring to teach. Let not many of you become teachers, knowing that as such we will incur a stricter judgment. Okay, so why that big warning? Well, teachers in James' time were held in very high regard, so it's not surprising that many people might want to wield that kind of influence and become a teacher. But James was warning here, that being regarded as a teacher was not so much a privilege as it was a responsibility. So am I in danger this morning of telling you something wrong? If I don't get everything right, that I'll incur judgment? The real question really is, will I get punished for my mistakes worse than the other sins here or at judgment seat or whenever? Well, Romans 5.18 gives us an answer to that. Though one, through one transgression there resulted condemnation, cremos, to all men, even the, so through one act of righteousness, there resulted justification to all men. Now justification, the, word, the Greek word, is a legal term. And it's the act of God declaring men free from guilt. It's a promise that our sin is never going to be bought, brought before us. God has already judged Christ for it, and the penalty has already been paid in full. So Romans 8 says there's no condemnation, that same word again, for those who are in Christ Jesus. So no, I'm not afraid that I'm going to slip and say something wrong and then I'm doomed. Because I think James is not talking about God at all here. I think what he's talking about is the natural consequences that occur if I'm not painfully careful with my words. There was a quote I found in one of the commentaries I consulted. It said, anyone who has ever taught knows that evaluation and criticism are daily occurrences. Teachers experience more than the average scrutiny. And as a teacher, I can tell you that is absolutely true. People will judge us by our integrity and how they do it by the words that we say. You know, when I was in seminary, we had lots of reading, lots of reading to do, thousands and thousands of pages a semester. I barely kept up, and sometimes I didn't. But... We had a lot of books, and one of the books that we were supposed to be reading 
was a book by J. Carl Laney called Answers to Tough Questions. It's a pretty, pretty big seller. Um, and he thought, the professor thought every one of us should have a copy of it in our libraries. So one day, one, two of the guys came in all excited because in another reading that they had done, they found a paragraph in J. Carl Laney's book that were identical, word for word. It was a whole paragraph. That's not a coincidence. And so, um, you know, they were talking, they were like, oh, and, and they looked up the... Uh, date of the two publications. And the one, that they, the second article they had found, came way before anything that Jay Carlini had been published. So you know who copied who, right? Well, then, a couple years later, and uh, um, I was studying on my own, and I picked up a book. I was doing something about the kingdom of God, and I looked, picked up the book um, to see what he said about this certain passage I was looking at. And I had looked at something else already, and I said, oh my gosh. It's another paragraph that was copied by Laney. Again, earlier date from the other one, and so I knew it had been plagiarism. Two instances of plagiarism in the same book. Now, I'm willing to give him the benefit of the doubt. Mistakes happen. I know when I wrote my book, I had to check and double check. I hadn't copied anything inadvertently. But even then, those two mistakes showed me this was not a man that was careful with his work. And so it kind of made me wonder what other shortcuts he had taken in this research. When a teacher is caught spouting inaccurate information, it's going to damage their audience's view of their integrity and cast doubt on other things that they teach. People expect a teacher to be accurate and careful with their words. And I think this is what James is saying in that passage right there. But don't relax too much out there, people, because even though you might not be teaching, you're not off the hook. Because James says, for we all stumble in what we say. If anyone does not stumble in what he says, he's a perfect man. So this passage isn't for teachers. It's for everybody. Well, why are words so important, according to what James is teaching here? And by the way, if you have a, did you get the sheets? I didn't even look. Okay, good. Good. I have a listening sheet there. They're still in the blanks just to keep you on your toes. Um, but anyway, that's just to help you along. Our words impact us. Our words impact us, the one saying it. Words are directive. The tongue might be a small part of you, but it, already direct, it actually directs how you go. And what James does is he gives us two metaphors. You know I love metaphors on, uh, to illustrate this point. The first is a picture of a horse, the bridle of a horse, to be exact. Now, I'm not standing here claiming that I know a lot of stuff on on horses. Remember, I'm the girl who thought she was getting swimming lessons when she signed up for equestrian training <laughs> in college. We all have room to grow. But I can read, <laughs> and I read that a bridle has something called a bit, a metal bar that goes into the horse's mouth. And when the rider wants to halt, he pulls on the reins, and the bit presses against the horse's tongue. So the rider controls this massive animal with a very small bit. The word for bridle actually means, literally means lead out of the Greek. Second metaphor Paul gives us, or excuse me, James gives us, is, a, is the picture of a ship. Even though it's a small part, a rudder steers the great ship. And a sailboat can't get anywhere without one. 
Without a rudder, it's at the total mercy of the wind alone. And it most likely will never reach its destination and more likely to be dashed to pieces on the rocks. The tongue directs, a small thing directs us. A meme I saw the other day is an example of this. It said, never argue with a liar. You can't win because they believe their own lies. Lawyers see it in the courtroom all the time. I know this because I watch TV. But people tell a lie so often they actually believe it. Have you, have you ever run into that? I have. Our words can have a powerful impact on us. The moral of these two metaphors is this. Our words impact us. We need to control our tongues or our tongues are going to control us. Another way James tells us our words are important is that our words can destroy others. James gives two more Ill metaphors. That's why I love this passage so much. Uh, with the second point. The first one is fire. Not too many things are more destructive than fire. When I was about, I don't know, 11, 12 years old, my neighbor, one door down from me, um, his house caught fire. They were having a big party a couple days after Christmas, and there was a lot of drinking going on, and somebody uh, left a cigarette, apparently, burning in the couch. And they all went to bed, party was over. About 4 in the morning, the wife woke up, choking on smoke, and she went into the main uh, living area, and the whole place was so filled with smoke she couldn't see anything, so she instinctively went and opened the sliding glass door to clear the smoke. Well, what it did was give oxygen to the fire. The cows burned into flames, the Christmas tree went up in flames, and pretty soon the whole room, within seconds, was just a roaring inferno. They barely got out of the house with their lives. Very scary. My mom uh, sat on my bed looking out the window. I couldn't look. I was too scared watching in the middle of the night people throwing burning couches out their uh, picture window. It was a horrible destruction. The second metaphor for destructiveness of tongue is a poison. Enough of a substance can kill you, a bad substance. So what is John, James saying? He's saying a tongue out of control can lead to uh, total destruction. And what's the force behind all that construction? He tells us, this tongue is set on fire by hell. Satan will use our thoughtlessly spoken words to cause division, corrupt uh, others by spreading filth, promote disunity with damaging gossip, or cause hurt with uncontrolled anger. Satan's in the business of destruction. And he will use what we give him to destroy hearts and homes and lives. Now, not many of us wake up with the intention of being a tool of Satan that day. But make no mistake, just as James warns earlier uh, in his letter that temptation from sin is not from God, now he's telling us that those destructive words are not from God either. Our words can destroy, and God is not about destruction. He's about restoration. He's about redemption. So when we don't control our tongues, we are scoring points for the wrong team. You know, back in 1929, there was a very famous Rose Bowl game that took place. Uh, it was against Georgia. It was Georgia Tech versus UCAL. And it was quite a game, uh, mostly, mostly a defensive game, low scoring. But at one point, Georgia Tech fumbled on the 40-yard line. The ball was scooped up by a guy named Roy Regals, 
and he was a linebacker with UCAL. He turned to the left, he started to run, and somebody shoved him from the opposite direction, and he careened into a tackler, and when he came out of that mess of people, he got turned around, and he lost his bearings, and breaking free from the crowd, he started to run the ball in the wrong direction. Well, a teammate saw what was happening, and he starts to pursue him. As a matter of fact, the whole team was chasing after Regals going down this field to stop him before he scored for the other team. And uh, he did catch up this one guy with him at the one-yard line. But on the next uh, play, UCAL tried to punt the ball away from their end zone, but it was blocked. And Georgia Tech scored a two-point safety. And the final score of the game was 8-6. Regals unwittingly gave the opposing team their victory. And, of course, that poor guy, he never lived it down. He was called Wrong Way Regals for the rest of his life. Scoring, well, you know, we don't want to be a spiritual Roy Regals, do we? Scoring points for the opposing team with our tongues. Because thoughtless words are points for Team Satan. A third way our words are important is that they reflect our prominent influence. Remember, James is writing to Christians. He's assuming they believed in Jesus. Their eternal salvation is secure. They belong to God. So he exposes this oxymoron of an uncontrolled tongue. He says, with it, we bless the Lord our Father, and with it, we curse men who are made in his likeness. What's the lesson here? Our words reflect our prominent influence. A tongue under control is a tongue... Under, when a tongue is under control, it's under the influence of the Holy Spirit. It's reflective of that. When he is in charge, our tongue will be a force for good instead of destruction. You know, it's right in James' metaphors, that good part. Remember the horse? When it's under control, that animal can be used to accomplish great things. Rather than destruction, a horse can be used for farming and transportation and pleasure activities. All good. The rudder on a ship? Rather than the wind controlling the ship, the rudder makes the wind rather than its destroyer, its helper. In fact, the stronger the winds, the faster a boat can go with a rudder and reach its intended destination. Fire, when it's under control, it can bring warmth and light and comfort and cheer on that cold night. Even poison can be used for good in small amounts. Last year, my sister went through six rounds of pretty intensive chemotherapy for breast cancer. And she survived, and she's cancer-free. We're very thankful. But chemo is basically poison they put in your veins. Um, and they kill the bad cancer cells, but it kills a lot of other things as well. But that poison is used for good. Worked for my sister, that's for sure. Obviously, we want all of our words to work for good, to be used for God's glory. But unfortunately, taming the tongue is not as simple as just making a decision to stop the bad words. Because James tells us no one can tame the tongue. And he says, if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he's perfect, able to bridle the whole body as well. The perfect man is the only one with complete control over the tongue. And as we said before, nobody's perfect. But if we can't hope to control the tongue, then what's the point of this message? And that brings us to the so what. How can all of this that we just covered impact our lives now? If no one can control the tongue, where's the hope? Well, there is hope. We all have issues with the tongue. For some of us, it's anger. We react to inconveniences or irritants quickly and ask questions later. For me, sitting in front of Facebook can bring that one on. For some of us, it's gossip. 
Nothing, some people love nothing more than spreading the kind of news that puts people in a negative light. For some other people, it's judgment. We don't think twice about assuming bad motivations or condemning someone for their actions. It's in all of us, let's face it. And where does that nastiness come from? Well, Jesus tells us. For the mouth speaks out of that which fills the heart. The bottom line, in order to control our tongue, we've got to have a change of heart. That's the basic thing. But the problem is, is that we can't really change our hearts. We can decide, we can make decisions, um, but you know how hard it is to make a permanent change, right? I mean, if, if making decisions and, uh, or resolutions could permanently change my behavior, it would be a thin woman sitting up in here in front of you this morning. But it's just really hard to keep up for any length of time by willpower. A decision might last for a while, but eventually our good intentions go south. It's not within our power to change our hearts. God can. Paul assures us he's doing that right now. He says, he who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it. He's at work in this right now. Well, then, is there a part that we can play? If he's already doing that, what can we do? Yes. But it's not about changing our behavior. It's about changing our focus. Now, Ephesians 5.18, Paul wrote this. Do not get drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit. Now, Paul, this is a contrast statement. Paul is contrasting two things. One is being drunk with wine. The other is filled with the Spirit. Now, what those two contrasts, they have to kind of have something in common. And I think it's this. When you are drunk with wine, you are what we call all the time under the influence, right? People that are... In, have, have drinking too much wine, they are, they are out of control. They don't, they can't, they say things that they can't believe the next morning they said. They do things that put them and others in peril at times. They, they're absolutely not acting like they would if they didn't have that, that influence over them. Paul says, don't have that influence over you, but have this influence over you. And what's this influence? Being filled with the Spirit. Um, he's saying we should completely submit to the Spirit of God. Who is in us? Who is in us? And, you know, it's not that we need more of the Spirit. Even a spark of God, you think that's not enough? It is. But it's us being in submission, being, uh, putting ourselves under his influence that he's talking about here. Living under the influence like an alcoholic lives under the influence of alcohol. Placing ourselves in submission to him is going to change our behavior and our hearts because to be filled with the Spirit is to place ourselves under his control. And what does the Spirit in us produce? Think about our words. This is what they'll turn into if we're under the influence of the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Imagine if your speech could be described 
by those adjectives. What a blessing that would be. Smaller boats come in and out of most harbors without a problem. But the really large boats, the ones that need a lot of depth, they need special guidance. So when it nears port, and, and they know they're coming in, a bar pilot's boat, a small boat, leaves, and he meets the tanker out in open waters. He climbs up on the board and onto the larger vessel. And there, the captain of the ship steps aside, hands over the wheel, and he gives up his control of the ship to the bar pilot. You know why? Because the bar pilot knows the harbor, and he knows where the deep channels are, and he knows where the ship has to be docked. So, of course, he gives it over to him. Too many of us are trying to steer our own ships into the harbor. But like the captain of that vessel, we need to step aside and turn the control of our lives over to the bar pilot. He knows the way. He knows how we need to go. A change of heart is not about self-control. It's really about surrender. When we put ourselves in God's hands and we ask him to be the captain of our ship, the influence of our hearts, that's when the supernatural begins to happen. He wants to change us. And our part is not to try harder, but it's to rest in him, to keep our focus on him. And when we do, he does that transforming work in our hearts. It's our only hope of getting this wild thing under control. God at work in us. You know, speaking of alcohol, not, Alcohol Anonymous, it's a 12-step program, as I'm sure you all know. But I found it interesting. The first three steps lay the foundation for the other nine. It's about giving over the control of your life to a higher power, um, admitting helplessness, and trusting in that power as greater than ourselves and, so that, and that he could restore our lives to sanity once more. First three steps. Well, I took those three steps and I did a little revising for us today because those same steps can help us in getting control of our tongue. Step one, admit to God that we are powerless to change our hearts because the heart is, a, is the source of our damaging word. Second, we should believe that God is ready and able to change it. That's the faith part. And finally, turn our hearts over to the care and nurturing of God and leaving the transformation into his very capable hands. You know, I was kind of astonished as I studied this passage today to find that it, it is too, like everything else that is with the Lord, is really a matter of faith in trusting him. And when we believe God for this, he will transform our hearts. We can't do it on our own. As, John, as Jesus said as he prayed, I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. So what I'd like you to do right now is take that little sheet that you were given and look at the very bottom. There's a couple of questions that I would like you to be able to uh, just work through, you and the Lord alone, right now, just for a few short minutes, and uh, just take the things that we've learned today and apply them to your heart.